and we can begin. Welcome everybody, welcome to the Habura. Um, Sunday special, uh, not something we've done before, something we may continue to do in the future, even during membership mode. Uh, welcome to our guests who haven't been here before. Uh, the Chabura is a virtual and physical Beit Midrash with students from all around the world. Our new membership curriculum begins in July, please God, covering Mikra, Halakha, Talmud, Machshaba, and history. To join our currently over 150 students already signed up, please do visit the website, thechabura.com. Now moving on to tonight's show, the first of a the first half of a two-part series dedicated to Ba'alea Tosafot and Hachmeh Sefarad. Now I was asked, why is it that a series like this matters? And why is it important to host topics, you know, shirim like this on topics like this? And I wanted to quote the words of our Rosh Bet Midrash in the first edition of our quarterly journal as follows. The perspectives, thoughts, worldview, and customs of the Jews are diverse and wide ranging. This diversity runs to our very origins. We began as a family, but even the family was born from difference. Yaakov fathered 12 children who became the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those 12 children came from four different mothers, two of whom were women not related to Yaakov as Rachel and Leah were. And while today all that is left of that great and diverse nation are descendants of three tribes, the genetics of all are undoubtedly within us. We are anything but monolithic. And yet, in the diversity of our nation, there are members whose light at times has shined brighter than others. In the most recent chapter of our long history, the Ashkenazi branch of the family has found the greatest public face and prominence, while the Sephardi branch, which was the mainstream for 80% of Jewish history, has been largely obscured. Both of these beautiful mesorot come from a treasury of culture, of thought and of worldview that is an integral and essential part of the Jewish story. Now, why do we host this at the Chabura? Well, a fundamental objective of the Chabura is to provide our students around the world with two important things, framework and context. This series, like much of our Torah learning, will offer contextual insights into the approach of Hachamim who come from two very different schools of thought, but who have ultimately left indelible marks on our Judaism. We plan to take this context with us into the larger framework of Torah education and ultimately enhance our understanding of Torah, which will no doubt impact our practice and our avodah. Next Sunday's shul will be focused on the Sephardi school of thought. So let us focus tonight on part one, dedicated to the Baalea Tosafot, the rabbis of Franco-German or Ashkenazi Jewry. During their formative period between 12th and 15th century, the Ashkenazim constituted less than 30% of world Jewry. Nevertheless, their commentaries and approach to Torah has no doubt become beyond influential all these years later. We have a very special hacham with us here tonight to explore these giants of Ashkenazi Jewry, Rabbi Chaim Rappaport. Rabbi Chaim has served in various roles throughout his career, head of the Leeds Kolel, rabbi for the Birmingham Central Synagogue, head of the Birmingham Rabbinic Board, and rabbi to the Ilford Synagogue. In 2003, he received a master's in Jewish ethics, and in 2005, he was appointed Dean of Machon Mayim Chaim. He has also served as an advisor to the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Alava Shalom. Rabbi Rappaport is a widely sought out speaker, educator, and counselor with an encyclopedic knowledge of both classical and contemporary Jewish sources. And 
always willing to approach and discuss the challenges of modernity. Rabbi Rappaport, I want to thank you on behalf of the Chabura for accepting our invitation to share with us tonight. Uh, the stage is yours. Bechabod. Uh, I will now unmute you if you're able to unmute yourself, Rav, and I will pin you. So let me know if you can do so here. Good evening, Marai Rabotai. Thank you very much for a warm introduction. The uh, individual that has made the Shidduch, the match between myself and the Chabura, is uh, Rabbi Nati Arazi Cohen, who is a member of the Rabbinic Training Academy here in London. And that's where we, we, we met up. In the Kolel, we're learning currently the Sugya of Kiddush Hashem, uh, martyrdom in Jewish law and thought. And um, one of the earliest, actually the first Sif in Shulchan Aruch, in Yeradea, Simon Kufn and Zion, Sif Aleph, um, discusses essentially a clash between the Maimonidean and the Tosafist culture. Uh, regarding voluntary martyrdom, we all know that martyrdom, giving up one's life, surrendering one's life for Judaism, is a mitzvah. Uh, it's the mitzvah of Yisrael, and it is also uh, in the negative injunction, um, there are occasions where one is obliged, according to Jewish law, to surrender one's life rather than to commit a transgression. Rambam famously, in his early life, when he wrote the epistle on martyrdom or the epistle on apostasy, the Egerat Hashmad, ruled that when there is no obligation to give up one's life, it is strictly forbidden to give up one's life to the extent that if a person does give up his life in situations where it is not mandated, such msirut nefesh is not warranted, it is considered no less than an act of suicide. The Rambam reiterates this ruling twice in the fifth chapter of his Magnum Opus, the Mishnah Torah, the Hilchot Yasadeh Torah, fifth chapter, he says that someone who gives up his life when he's not obliged to do so, is held accountable. He's mitchayev b'nafsho. Um, and the, the ruling of the Rambam is actually reflected in the writings of Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Moshe ben Nachman, although he probably had some more room for maneuver. And similarly, other uh, great scholars of the Spanish and Lysian tradition as well. In sharp contrast to this, we find that the Ba'alei HaTosafot, most prominently one of the first Ba'alei HaTosafot, Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu Yaakov Tam, actually believed otherwise. In Tosafot, in Avodah Zarah 27b, Dibur HaMatchil Yachol, um, we have there the view that if a person wishes to give up his life, even when he's not obliged to do so, he has the entitlement, it is his privilege, it is his prerogative, and he may go ahead and do so. This view is most firmly attributed specifically to Rabbeinu Tam, and I see him very much as the prototype 
or the Baal Tosfot in general, um, in uh, gloss on Avodah Zarah, Yud Ches Amadalev, 18a, where he discusses the voluntary act of 400 boys and 400 girls recorded in Kitin 57b, on Zion and the base, who, when they were taken captive and they realized that they were going to be used for immoral purposes, they threw themselves overboard into the ocean. And Rabbeinu Tam says that this, he doesn't just treat it as an agadic narrative, he treats this as a, a halachic precedent for the idea of people giving up their lives, even in circumstances where they're not obliged to do so. Why is this relevant to the presentation this evening on the Baaleyato support? And one of the earliest Baaleyato support, Rabbeinu Tam, who in a sense left his imprint on all the Baaleyato support, even those who went ahead, went on to disagree with him, formulate their own schools of thinking. It is important for the following reason. I wish to argue, and I'm not the first one to say so, that Rabbeinu Tam is often seen as a dialectical scholar, someone who reads every Gemara, bearing in mind every other Gemara, confronts contradictions, conflicting implications, and discovers reconciliations, different ways of intertwining um, and um, being Miyashev Stirot, solving blatant contradictions or implied contradictions between different subyot through uh, differentiating between circumstances sometimes more obvious differentiations, sometimes more uh, complex, uh, nuanced differentiations. But I personally look at Rabbeinu Tam and to a large extent, the Balei HaTostafot in general, um, wearing a completely different hat. What Rabbeinu Tam and the Balei HaTostafot were often doing in their Pilpalistic acrobatics, if you wish to call it that, was they were seeking to bring the halacha in line with reality or bring reality in line with halacha. That means to say like this, Rabbeinu Tam lived in a European Jewish community in the Middle Ages, which was fraught with its challenges, and there were real situations in which the observance of aloha was near impossible for the Jews of his time. Classical example of this is Rabbeinu Tam's comment in Sanhedrin Samech Gimalabad Beis, Sanhedrin 63b. There the Gemara says that it is forbidden to engage in a business partnership with a Gentile because maybe one will uh, come into a dispute and then he'll have to summon his partner to court and in court his non-Jewish partner will make an oath 
evoking the name of a false god, of a foreign deity. Rabbi Tam says that nowadays we do this. We do enter business and we do even bring them to court. And he, there is, um, Rabbi Tam says, he doesn't see this to be a violation of the prohibition do not allow the name of another God to be caused to be heard through you. In other words, do not cause a non-Jew to come to court and evoke the name of another God in an oath, in a lawsuit. Why not? Why, why does our practice, he says, because the Christians, the Gentiles with whom, who, with whom we come into contact, they um, they mention, they mention um, God, and they also mention um, the other components of the Trinity, of the of the Godhead in Christian thought, including the name of Yeshu. Without going into the details of that Teisvus, um, the idea that Teisvus represent, presents, Rabbi Tam presents, incited in many Rishonim, whilst it appears to be a nuance in the prohibition of actually what Rabbeinu Tam was doing, he was engaged in saving Ashkenazi Jewry from the reductio ad absurdum of halacha. For were medieval Ashkenaz halacha to have assumed this prohibition as real and as dogmatic, then it would have been impossible for Jews who are anyway constrained and confined in areas which they could do business to make a living. It would render interaction with non-Jewish people impossible and therefore people would die of poverty. This was an untenable situation. And therefore Rabbeinu Tam had to save the day. Very often Rabbeinu Tam's comments are um, found in the Teisvis without giving us the economical or social cultural background. That this particular comment in Teisvis and Sanhedrin is very clear. Rabbeinu Tam doesn't make any bones of it. He tells us very clearly what it is. He's concerned about the realistic survival of the Jewish people and the viability of their existence amongst the nations. But there are some times when Teisvis makes a comment, it looks like an innocent comment, or he asks a stira from one place to another, and is Miyashev the stira, uh, and it looks as if he's just engaging in internal londus, in an internal analysis of the source. But really, there is something much more uh, practical, pragmatic at, uh, at stake. Um, and it's something to do with the, um, the um, viability of halacha in society. Now, let's go back for a moment to Kiddush Hashem before we, we pause, before we pause to analyze a little more. Um, what practical concern did Rabbeinu Tam or the Bali Atoisfas have 
that led them to justify voluntary martyrdom. At face value, there doesn't really seem to be any solid support for such a view from the Gemara. In fact, Toysfus cites a story from the Yerushalmi in Shavias and in Sanhedrin. Toysfus there in, in Avodazarah, of Zion on the base. He cites a, a story from the Yerushalmi. But the story, the way we have it in the Yerushalmi, and the way all the manuscripts seem to have preserved that story, would yield the opposite conclusion of Toysfus. I'm not going into all the details because I realize I'm pressed for time and I want to, uh, otherwise I would. So what was it in that particular, in this particular case, I believe it wasn't um, so much prescriptive, but it was defensive. For we know that Ashkenazi jury had a long standing history, predated Rabbeinu Tam, during Rabbeinu Tam's life and after Rabbeinu Tam's death. where people not only gave up their lives voluntarily rather than undergo forced conversion, but they even, or other, other, other sins for which one is not obliged to give up one's life, and certainly not obliged to take one's own life. People did so throughout a lengthy period of time. Now imagine you have a tradition, a tradition nowadays where you open the pages of the Gemara and you suddenly look back 200 years of Jewish history. You look at Chachamim and Rabbanim that you respect and admire and hold in high esteem. And you say, the lives have been in contrast to this halakha, there were fake rabbis. All your gedolim suddenly fall off the pedestal of prominence. Is that a tenable position? Of course not. Just as much as Rabbeinu Tam had to tweak the halacha of shutafut, partnership with a goy, to sit the circumstance, fit the circumstances in Christian medieval France, Germany, so too did Rabbeinu Tam need to find precedent. within halacha to justify the past, the illustrious past, people who the community considered to be saints, martyrs, people who they composed keynote, lamentations and dirges, eulogies, eulogies, which are some of them which were recited till today on Tisha B'Av, 
to have these people condemned posthumously was unthinkable. And therefore the Balearteistas would want to find every possible justification to sanctify their practice and to justify them. So some of the works of the Tosafists were done with the eye in the past and some with the eye in the future. Before I go into more, become more discursive, I want to give you a very interesting example from the din of Kefiat Kitin, imposing uh, on a husband, a recalcitrant husband, the obligation to give a get. That means that a Beth Din would take a husband, was reluctant to give his wife a get, and literally force him by sheer brutal force to compel him, to coerce him, to cajole him, to give a get. Based on the Gemara and Subas, based of Samachem and Aleph, the way it was read by all his predecessors, including his grandfather Rashi, there is a din that if a woman says, Ma'is alai, this man is repugnant to me. I cannot live with him. It's unbearable. Then there are circumstances, of course, with, with all the requisite caveats, according to which the sugya dictates that the bezdin is entitled to compel the husband, even using physical force to give a get. Rabbeinu Tam, and again, I don't have time to go into the detail of his interpretation, but in his interpretation of the sugya there in Maseches Ksubis, he turns the whole thing on its head. With a sleight of the hand, he gives a new interpretation to a few words in the sugya, a novel translation of a phrase in the Talmud, And suddenly, the Talmud completely opposes such coercion. A student in yeshiva who's learning Masechah Ksubis, learning the tractate, may not understand at all what was at stake here. You might think this is just a question of what's the chat in the Gemara? But if we look in the Teshuvot of Rabbi Nutam as they appear published in the Sefer HaYashar, we see very clearly that Rabbi Nutam was on a jihad here. This was no um, abstract hypothetical issue. There was a Bezdin, which included esteemed rabbis, including a certain Rabbi Nutam with whom Rabbi Nutam locked horns on other occasions who had actually implemented such kafiyah, such coercion. 
a Besdin of three rabbis. All of them recognized in the world, in the broader world of the Balei Atosafot. And Rabbeinu Tam undid their ruling. He wrote to them in no uncertain terms that he was not impressed and that he was completely mavatal nullified the ruling. Now there are times when Rabbeinu Tam um, suggests that uh, sometimes maybe protests too much that I thought of this pshat before any ma'aseh came to me. I was convinced that this is the meaning of the Gemara even in the absence of any practical challenge. But in this particular case it seems clear the Rabbeinu Tam himself was aware of what was at stake. There was something that he didn't want to happen. He did not want Kafiyat Gitin. Why didn't he want Kafiyat Gitin? That's a matter for scholars to speculate. I've seen that some academic scholars suggest, maybe Abraham Grossman, that. Rabbeinu Tam was living in the thick of Catholic Europe. In Catholic Europe, the idea of polygamy was out of the question. Divorce was also not an option. That is why the Chayram de Rabbeinu Gershom, the ban on having two wives, became ever more intense and solidified during that period of the Balei Atosafot. That is also why some scholars have suggested Rabbeinu Tam was against Kefiat Ketim. It was almost as if the whole notion of a get in and of itself stuck out like a sore thumb, was too Jewishly conspicuous that to not have Kefiat Ketim to have coerced Kitin would be pushing the envelope too far in the Christian Gentile environment. But I want to suggest actually a different pragmatic reason that Rabbeinu Hatam had, which is alluded to in the words of his tshuva. Some may say Rabbeinu Tam was a little bit insensitive to the plight of a woman who's going to remain an aguna. But what Rabbeinu Tam says in one place, I would rather have a situation that a woman would remain chained without the ability, ability to extricate herself from an impossible marriage than have a situation whereby people would cast dispersions on the children that she would give birth to in a future marriage as being Mamzerim. Rabbeinu Tam saw both the wood and the trees. Immediate empathy 
knee-jerk compassion would have it, that we should embrace the Talmudic precedent of Kifiyat Kitim. Say to free women on the straits and constraints. a bad marriage. But looking further down the road, Rabbeinu Tam thought to himself, but if this woman is going to get married again, and the notion of Kviat Kitin would not be viewed on by the populace as a real get. What you're going to have is a situation, she's going to get married again, give birth to children who won't be let into Jewish schools, or won't be allowed to get married, or they will have a certain stigma attached to them as being a pseudo-manzerim because the community wouldn't recognize the legitimacy of her forced get. Now, it's difficult for us to get into the mindset and also to get a vivid picture of the culture and the way that people work. But there is no question that there is evidence in the Middle Ages of just such type of aspersions being cast. So whether Rabbeinu Tam was right or wrong, his consideration was a pragmatic one. The interpretation of Rabbeinu Tam that appears on the pages of the Gemara looks like a typical dialectic in the sugya. But the consideration that Rabbeinu Tam had in mind was a pragmatic one. He was speaking not only as a scholar in an ivory tower, but as a pragmatic leader of the community, someone with foresight of the needs of the community. There are so many more examples. I've given one off the beaten track, which I don't think many people have heard of. We could talk about the case of Rabbeinu Tam allowing people to give interest, usury to non-Jews and take usury from non-Jews, which is a subject of a dispute in the Talmud. There are many other cases. But what I would like to do now in my presentation is to turn for a moment about something which has bothered me, does bother me, and probably will always bother me about this dialectic. So what we have here is like this. In the rabbinic decision-making process, rabbis look at precedents and texts. We try and decipher the meaning of the law based on the reading of the text. What's the connotation of the words? What does the phrase mean? But rabbis also have agendas, halachic agendas, religious agendas, theological agendas. To say that rabbis look at every question with equanimity and they have no bias in favor of one ruling or another, I don't think I need to convince members of the Chabura that that is not correct. Of course, 
there were many considerations in favor of one view or another. But where I have personally struggled with is on precisely how this balance works between textual reading, connotation of the canonized law, and the so-called meta-halachic considerations that a halachic authority will bear in mind. If we are to say that the text is just plasticine and you can twist it to fit in anything you want to say, that's to make a mockery of Jewish law. It's to make a, it's to ridicule Tarash Balper. It is to scoff the whole tradition of any rabbinic decision-making process, be it the Sephardi, Ashkenazi, medieval or modern approach. If on the other hand, we say, no, actually the rabbis were only governed by text. And Yikov Adina Tahar, they didn't care about the reality, the empirical reality which they confronted had no sway over their decisions, over their rulings. And that is to also an injustice to the rabbis and a certain blindness to historical fact. So I've often said to my Talmudian, it's like this, a text can lend itself to more than one plausible interpretation. There are, of course, implausible interpretations. But plausible interpretations, sometimes a text can be read one way or another. So a rabbi who has a particular desideratum, a particular goal, a particular theological or pragmatic point that he wants to push, has a certain latitude when it comes to the interpretation of the text because you can choose to interpret it in one of two ways. This doesn't mean to say as one thinker put it, as one publicist put it, where there is rabbinic will, there is a halachic way. No, there are confines, there are limitations, there are boundaries, there are parameters, but Within those parameters, there is an area of latitude. Text can be read one way, it can be read another way. It is within that framework that the rabbi's inclination will find expression. But even this synthesis is an oversimplification. And it seems 
sometimes that the rabbis in the Middle Ages had a lot more power, autonomy. when it came to this interplay between textual reading and pragmatic ruling. I'm going to mention to you Atosvis, also ruling Rabbeinutam, which has nothing to do with uh, the social, cultural uh, function of the community. There's a Gemara in Shabbos, everyone knows this Gemara in Davkof Yutes, that a person is obliged to eat three su'udot on Shabbat. The Gemara connects it with the Three words in the Pasuk, in Exodus chapter 16, three times. So Rabbeinu Tam, cited there in the comments, Valley Atosafot says, when it says three sudot, it doesn't really need to be three sudot. The third sudot, you can just have some fruit, or you can be yotze with something very minimal. Strange, just thought, why would Rabbi Tam say so? No one else says so. Rambam doesn't say so. When we read the Sefer HaYashar, which is Rabbi Tam's response, we find that Rabbi Tam was inspired by something quite magical. As uh, certain parts of Ashkenazi Jewry were inclined to do. He speaks there about a Midrashic tradition, some obscure Midrashic tradition to the effect that if a person drinks water in the period of twilight, then he's gozelat krovav hamitim. He is stealing his dead relatives. In a highly anthropomorphic vision of uh, the fate of the dead, the deceased relatives are about to return to the fires of purgatory after nightfall. They're given a brief respite during which they can have a cold glass of water, perhaps even a freezing shower in the river. But if you drink the water from the river then, you're taking this water and depriving the dead relatives, there's a shortage of water supply. Now, during the week, this wasn't a major problem because people ate their evening meal long before twilight. But on Shabbat afternoon, when they wouldn't, uh, they would wait till nightfall, some people would have the sudash lishit. Uh, towards the evening. And then Rabbeinu Tam was concerned that if they would eat then, they would drink then, if they would drink then, they would violate this Midrashic uh, challenge problem. And in the Sefer Yashar, it says that Rabbeinu Tam got very angry, Ka'as or Rabbeinu Meshulam. He was angry with Rabbeinu Meshulam and made a, a feast then, made a sudah then. Now, if you study the works of Israel Tashma, for example, 
Chachmei Ashkenaz Kadmon, or even some of Grossman's works, you will come across an enormous amount of magical, astrological, demonological orientated customs. Many of them have survived. Many of them are only kept by a few elite today. And many of them have faded altogether into oblivion. But Ashkenaz, medieval Ashkenaz, was to a large extent dominated in the best sense of the word with spirits. So whilst Rabbeinu Tam, as he is found in the commentaries on Shabbat 119, seems to be making an innocent, innocent remark, projecting a view that Sudash Lishit doesn't need to be a full meal with bread. Once again, the Talmudic commentary that looks so innocuous really represents a completely different agenda. Ashkenazi preoccupation with, uh, shall we say, the world of the spirits. All of this uh, transcends my uh, uh, rational mind. And so there's nothing wrong in learning the Tosafot and looking just at the, what they're dealing with in terms of the words and the glosses and the Gisaot, versions and manuscripts, but it's only half the picture. Now, Coming back a little bit to this tension between text and authority. We all know what Maimonides the Rambam writes in his introduction to the Mishneh Torah. And uh, in a similar vein that uh, have this expressed, by Rabbi Yosef Karo, Karo in his uh, Kestat Mishnah in the second chapter of the Rules of Rebels of Chot Mamrim. The Chatimata Talmud, the notion that after the Mishnah, the Mishnah is sacrosanct and no one can argue. And after the Talmud, the Talmud is sacrosanct and the Gemara remains the final port of appeal for Jewish law. Is something that happened because of Kabbalat Kalal Yisrael. There was no heavenly voice that came down and said, from now on, you can't argue. It was a certain consensus that emerged from within the Jewish people. The Jewish people accepted the Talmud. After all, why should it be that way? Why could not the Rabbanan Savurai or the uh, Goanim or even the Rishonim argue with the Talmud? But this was something that came from within. If you wish, 
a collective communal acceptance. Now, I remember giving a class to students on the subject of it. When you learn Gemara, very often, Gemara asks a question on a Mishnah, various questions, several questions. And then the Gemara says, Chasri Mikhasra Ketane. The Mishnah is uh, deficient. There's a lacuna in the text. There was something missing, and the Mishnah must be read slightly differently. And this is how it should be read. And the Mishnah becomes three times as long. And the entire meaning of the Mishnah has changed. Or sometimes you have a ruling in the Mishnah, which seems to be giving a blanket ruling in a statement, in a statement and the Gemara asks a question, the Gemara says the Mishnah is talking about one very specific case, almost the exception to the rule. And I remember even going to school, finding this very strange. Why did the mission not say what it meant? Why did the Gemara need to uncover entire lines which were absent from the Mishnah? And then I read the introduction of Rabbeinu Menachem Hameiri. a scholar indeed from the Provence, south of France, in the 13th century, but with strong Maimonidean leanings. And the Meiri says there, that when it says, or that the Mishnah is made, and the Gemara makes a narrow ukimta to say that the Mishnah is only referring to one very specific case, he says, this was done when the rabbis wanted to disagree with their predecessors. But rather than Coming out, coming out in direct confrontation with the text, dismissing. This is written in the, uh, the Meiri writes this, someone just asked, the Meiri writes this in his Hakadama, his introduction to Masachat Avot, uh, to Tractate Avot, um, when he discusses the Seder HaKabbalah, the order of the tradition dating back to Sinai throughout the generations. So he goes through the different Kufot, the Mishnah, and the Gemara. And he says, so rather than scrap the canon, so to speak, they reread the canon. And then he has the following words. I hope I'm parsing correctly because I'm speaking from memory. As we sometimes do to our predecessors, 
and our elders. With the knowledge that they are superior to us, but all this he says comes to show that there is no perfection in mankind even amongst the most elite. You have to see this, these few lines of the Me'iri, because extremely illuminating. Now, it is of course not the only Pshat in Chesurim and Chasra. And there are other interpretations and other ways of understanding it. But this is the view of the Me'iri. Why is this relevant to what we've been speaking about tonight? Because if we see that the rabbis of the Talmud did this sometimes with the Mishnah, even though they accepted the concept of Khatimata Mishnah, the canonization of the Mishnah. Is it possible that this was sometimes done by later rabbis after the Hatimata Talmud? This is just a question. I don't know. Now a word on the future. In light of all the above, I think it's extremely understandable why the dialectics of the Baleatosis are so significant in the 21st century as we, we grapple with the realities of our own history, changes and the challenges of our times, and the need to apply halachic norms. Baleatos was sometimes used arguments, textual explanations, but they also used other concepts, principles such as Mishum Eva, animosity, as a Kavod Abriot. There's a Tosfot in word Katan, very strange Tosfot. Tosfot discusses the practices of Avilut, of mourning, which include uh, covering the head, Atifata Avel, pool, covering of the head, Apichata Mitot, turning over the beds. Tosfot say, we don't do this because it would cause ridicule. No textual appeal just authoritative dogma on behalf of the Balotistas to say we don't have the same freedom of thought or freedom of hand, freedom of interpretation 
as the Goinim and the Rishonim, and there they did. It seems that as time goes on, the bottleneck becomes tighter. But for those of us who sometimes feel that if we want to be really from earlier than thou, we must completely dispel any pragmatism and remain focused only on the theoretics of halacha. Legacy of the Baaleat was fought. Teaches us all that this is not how Allah works. It may be difficult to get the balance right, but the aim has got to be the combination of pragmatic and theoretical considerations intertwine and interplay with the interpretation of text and precedent to create a healthy equilibrium, one which is both loyal to the giver of the law and to the people of the book. Thank you. Hacham, thank you so, so much. I mean, it's, uh, it's so, inspiring to see how Ahachamim of all the generations was so in tune with reality. Uh, you call it pragmatism. Definitely that's the term I'd use as well. But with this commitment to Berit, that's a commitment to the developing world and uh, trying to maintain uh, Yiddishkeit, if you like, for lack of a better term, um, uh, in any given situation, of course, with boundary and with limitation so it, it's a fantastic presentation thank you so much rob i know there are questions i'm having people messaging me chatting me saying how uh, fantastic this was we are going to have to get you back rob whether you like it or not uh, because uh it was much needed wisdom uh does anybody want to unmute i know Ohad, you had a question do you want to unmute and go ahead and ask the rough sure thank you rob that was a beautiful presentation um i think there's a little slight difference maybe I might be wrong, but with what the Meiri is writing, that the Okimta and the Talmud was, it feels like when they disagreed over a pre-existing tradition, meaning there was a, 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 a tradition that they had and then it just couldn't, couldn't fit in with the Mishnah. What Tosfot is seemingly doing is, is with an innovation, meaning to respond to a reality and then they're reinterpreting the, the text for, for the for the issue that arose versus a set tradition or something like that. I hear what you say, and it may be the case. It may also be not the case because um, the Me'iri says that it's very similar to what we do when we disagree with our predecessors. He gives specifically an analogy. So, um, uh, and and he speaks about the fact being she'en shlemut b'bnei adam. So um, 
I think it's, I think he, he, he's, he's, he, the, the is probably directly talking about a case where there is a, actually a theoretical reason to differ rather than a practical reason to differ. However, what I was wondering, and I was only posing this as a question, this Miri speaks volumes because once again, one may ask, does the Miri mean to say, how, how far does this go? Um, th this ploy of Chasur and Mechasra, which is trying, as the Miri says, to maintain the sanctity of the canon. But in order to do so, is not really being intellectually honest. It's, it's quite a, it's an extremely daring situation that the Miri makes. And I would even be frightened to attribute this to anyone else or, um, uh, and, 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 uh, 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 or, or say that others, um, that the Balayatos has ever used this principle in their thinking. I, I wish to emphasize that. I, I was just saying that um, in terms of a precedent for the need for rabbis who had the full respect for their background and tradition to assert their autonomy is something that we are familiar with from the past. And in that sense, and in that sense only, I wanted to cite the Me'iri. But I saw that someone just asked something uh, the comments of the Me'iri, I, I know that I wasn't very textual tonight. In other words, I, I avoided spending long times in presenting texts because I wanted to, to, to cram in as much as possible. Uh, Berlin Eder, I will send um, uh, the text of the Me'iri along. And uh, um, uh, um, and, and then you will be able to have it. Just one second, I'll see if I can, yeah. I'll send this along afterwards. Thank you, Raf. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, thanks a lot for the question. I know Raf Phillips has a question. Raf Phillips, you want to unmute? Go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Hi. So I noticed many of the examples of the, the, the toxicists that we're bringing they were, tend to be Rabbeinu Tam. I noticed this also, and I've been learning that Rabbeinu Tam always seems to be a little bit of a, like an outlier when it comes to, you know, putting together the opinion on Sugya. So how many of the things you're saying would you say is typical of the all the choice of fists? And how many might be for the particular approach for Rabbeinu Tam? Well, Rabbeinu Tam and Rabbeinu Yitzchak are the two main Bali choices. Uh, the Ri, Rabbeinu Tam and the Ri, I would say that uh, a large portion of the choices, it's difficult to know exactly how much, but but are really them. In addition to them, you have others, but many of the others were influenced by them. So yes, there are differences between Rabbeinu Tam and, and he even had disputes with Rabbi Mishulim. He had disputes with Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, um, who was a disciple of his, but uh, was quite independent-minded. Um, but I do think that the, in general terms, the agenda of Rabbeinu Tam, 
as a pragmatic halachist is something that was very much in the consciousness of the entire school of the Baleatrismus. Thank you, Raf. And thank you, Raphael, for the question. I mean, I, 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 you know, I find myself very often when I'm looking at modern questions, for example, if we discuss the question of Nashim Batamut Torah, women, women learning Torah. So, you know, I don't want to go into the subject now, but if you read the Rambam in Chotamut Torah uh, 113, uh, you, you can read it. There are two ways of reading that very same text. We often find situations where a text tolerates, where the words can be legitimately, without being contrived, legitimately interpreted in one of two ways. And I often find myself thinking, I know what I, I think the text should read, or what I want the text to read. But why do I want the text to read one thing rather than the other? Is this because I've watched uh, a program on BBC? It could be, but not necessarily. It could be because when we speak about Torah, we're not just talking about halakha. Torah has halakha, but it also has meta-halachic principles. For example, Rabbeinu Tam was very concerned about ha-Torah chasa al-mamanam shal Yisrael. The Torah, has, Torah is concerned about the Jewish economic state, the economy of Jewish people. That's a value. So in Rabbeinu Tam's discussion about what it means uh, how long a pot has got to wait before it's considered to be the concept of have said, the concept of potential loss of money or of food plays a role in his considerations. It's clear he says so in his discussion with the of Bukhar you should be lenient because of Hafsid. Now, there's just been a Machlaikis about discussing whether Mason Tam Nefkam requires 24 hours wait or requires only Linat Laila, the passage of a night, which depends on how you translate words in the Gemara. And then suddenly Rabbeinu Tam is saying, but maybe there's room to be lenient because of financial economic concerns. My reading is that for Rabbeinu Tam, as for, as for myself, not comparing myself in stature, but for any Paisik, um, the awareness of the economic concerns is not a detraction from one's shleimut, one's, one's halachic status. On the contrary, that is a Torah consideration. It may not be a halachic consideration per se, but it's a Torah consideration. Torah is not just halacha. Rav Moshe Feinstein wrote a tshuva about whether it would be possible to appoint a convert, a ger, as a Rosh Yeshiva. And he says, um, starts the tshuva by saying ostensibly no. Because the Rambam in Elchot Malachim 
one five says you can't point a gear in the position of Sarara. And ostensibly the position of Rosh Shiva is a position of Sarara. However, says Ramesh Feinstein, he goes on, but we are obliged to do everything we can to ameliorate the plight of converts. We see that the spirit of the Torah is to extend ourselves towards converts, to facilitate. Therefore, let us see if we can find another way of reading the situation. And he carries on his shuva to say, well, one could argue that the position of Rosh Hashiva, although it entails Sarara, but the intrinsic position is not one of Sarara, it's a position of, of, um, of teaching, which uh, has an ancillary element of Sarara, letting in Talmudim or expelling Talmudim. So we see the post can do this the whole time. Would you say that he was engaging here in uh, uh, like non-pure? No, because if you can interpret Sarah in one of two ways, and you can make such a dialectical distinction between two types of Sarah, and both of them are plausible readings of the text, at least they are according to Rabbi Feinstein, must illuminate we deal with the text anyway I've perhaps gone on a little bit too long in the response uh, not at all, Rav. I think we just lost you for a little bit. The connection got a bit uh, lost there. Can you still hear us, Rav? I can hear you. You can still ask? Okay, fantastic. Um, I think a couple of more questions. One here, Dov has asked, um, I don't know if it's so much a specific question, as much as that in general, the Tosafot method will probably be defined by his trying to fit variant Gemarot together to a far greater degree to what had been done before then. Focusing on the few cases where the motivations are from super Talmudic sources or societal reasons seems so to be. I'm using you now. I'm using you. Ah, you're using a few cases. Uh, shall I post it into the chat Focusing so you can read on it? Focusing. You can, yes, please. On the few, yeah, I'll post it there. It might be a little bit easier to read for everybody. I think it's a very interesting point. There we go. This might need a sheer in of itself. It's a very valid point, actually, yeah. uh, and uh, enables me uh, enables me to explain. I wasn't suggesting for a moment that Rabbi Tam's entire career 
was one of um, dealing with the challenges of pragmatism. There are plenty discussions where Rabbeinu Tam is busy reconciling Morris, which have no pragmatic difference whatsoever, gets into the same type of minutiae. For example, Rabbeinu Tam in Bavabasa 16b confronts their Gemara, which says that there was a stone in Avraham Avinu's uh, chest, which uh, anyone who was ill would come and look at it and would be healed. And the Bali Atos was asking a question, uh, how does this fit in with the Gemara in Bava Metziah, Pedal where it says, or Pezayin Amadbeis, I can't remember now, where it says that until Yaakov Avinu, there was no illness. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, so how would there be any ill people to, to see the Margalit that was hanging in Avraham Avinu's chest? And there's a terrace of Rabbeinu Tam, and there's a terrace of Ri, and if you look in the various works of the Balia Tosfot, there are a lot of, there's a lot of discussion about this contradiction. And the, the, the distinctions that are made are between different types of illness, natural illness, illness through being uh, struck, uh, through a makah, an injury, and all sorts of sophistic dialectics. I would agree with the questioner now that this Tosfot, I mean, just one that just came to mind, and I'm sorry, but that's the one that came to mind if it didn't. Uh, do the trick, had nothing to do with any social, cultural, financial concerns in medieval Christendom or Paris or France or whatever it was. And there are hundreds of discussions like that. Um, perhaps I should have said that I was talking about the interplay specifically between Rabbeinu Tam as a parashan and Rabbeinu Tam uh, as a posaic and as a leader, as a manhig. Um, the Shia for one hour could have taken various forms and shapes. I could have discussed, perhaps you would have liked me to discuss the different ways of how Rabbeinu Tam, how Ram, for example, Rambam dealt with contradictions and Rabbeinu Tam did. We could have gone into all discussion, but Rambam would have been much more ready to say that there are different approaches in the Talmud rather than try and reconcile or to choose the Yerushalmi over the Bavli, or whatever it may be. Uh, the whole idea of reconciliation in uh, Had I chosen to give a lecture on that element of Rabbeinu Tam or the Baleatosphus in their career, then you may have heard nothing about the pragmatics. It would be a very narrow and restrictive approach to some and ridiculous to suggest that all Rabbeinu Tam was busy was with the type of challenges that I was discussing. Thank you, Rav. And we've just secured the next topic of the next year that uh, you'll be giving us, please, at the Chavara, because that sounds. But that's a very fascinating subject, Parshanut Talmud. Yeah, and, and and one way to it's actually the Meiri is a very good way. The Meiri often mentions both approaches and sometimes very helpful. And expose you to that, I guess. For a lot of us, have we come to an end now? Yes, we have. Uh, I think there's one final question, Rav, if you have a couple of minutes, if you don't mind. One final one by Avi Garson. Avi, go ahead. Okay. Thank you, Rav. Oh, only if you have time, Rav. But, uh, I just wanted to focus a little bit on the beliefs, or, or you could say something like the spirits that you mentioned uh, that um, 
those notions that um, you said that the Tosafists were, were sometimes they, they mention. Um, we think of sort of a medieval Ashkenaz of um, the ghettos or, or they were very segregated. Um, so where did that osmosis take place? Because it didn't have precedent in, in sort of the halachic writings before that. Or, so where did that influence come from and how, if they were so sort of, um, uh, you know, segregated from the, the, the Christian, um, I'm talking about the Chachamim specifically and the, and the rabbis, where did that interaction come from? And I've, I've heard different theories, but I'd like to hear what, what uh, the rabbi thinks. And thank you for the presentation. Yeah, well, there's a lot of discussion about that, about uh, where the where Rabbeinu Tam may have been exposed, where the Balayatists in general. You know, uh, someone just mentioned, you know, the Rambam's uh, influence of Aristotelian thinking. But there was also, I mean, there, there, there's no question that the Ram, the, the Rishonim were exposed to different, different ways, different dialectics that were taking place in other schools of law. Include, I mean, they weren't as ostracized as or as as one likes to think they were they had gentile connections they had cross-denominational connections meetings and they were certainly you know clever people and they had access to other literature uh, osmosis is an interesting word which you use because uh, in the tightest and most secluded of areas we see even today there's still room for osmosis um, no one is free from the circulation of ideas. Uh, sometimes it's through over the garden fence, the, the Gentile neighbor, but it, there are hundreds of ways of how it happens, different area, ideas coming into the, uh, but um, uh, yeah, no one is uh, in an island. Uh, and there was definitely a lot of interaction uh, with non-Jews. We see on the level of business, uh, the for and Zara, numerous occasions, speaks about the interaction with Gentiles, about wine, about selling candles for the church. Uh, th there was merchandise, people were living uh, in the real world and, 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 and no one was, uh, was, was in total, totally cocooned in his own bubble. On that note, I'll- Thank um, you so much, Rav. Thank you. Well. Thank you for staying on for so long. And we look forward to welcoming you back at the Chabura again. Everybody, see you next week for part two with Rabbi Aaron Halevach. Thank you very much again, Rav. And what a perfect coincidence that it's uh, on the Arayat, the yard site of the Rebbe. Uh, Take care. So thank you very much. Good night, everybody. Thank you, yes, so much honor to be able to give words. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. thank you so much. God bless. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Be sure to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Have a great day.